Greetings and welcome to the Real Estate Entrepreneur Podcast. I am your host, Pete Lorimer, former hit record producer and now host of the show, Stay Here on Netflix. Plus, I'm owner of LA's most creative boutique real estate firm, PLG Estates. On the podcast, you will always find business and real estate strategies, marketing techniques and tips for the entrepreneur. So make sure you hit blow up, smash to pieces that subscribe button, give it a like and please share this podcast with someone else that might get value from it. I get to turn the mic onto another victim. And this week, I had the distinct pleasure of interviewing Sharon Srivesta, who is a former Silicon Valley entrepreneur. And Sharon was fundamental in the rise of TELUS Real Estate Company here in Los Angeles and is currently CEO of Kingston Lane that has super slick solutions for us in the real estate community. Although he is a sought-after keynote speaker and contributor to top media publications, I wanted to go a-grilling. So I put him in the hot seat to find out what his secret sauce is for success. We had a roaringly good conversation, and I'm pleased to share it all with you. So without further ado, let's dive into another episode of The Real Estate Entrepreneur. Greetings. Welcome to The Real Estate Entrepreneur. Yes, we have a very, very special guest for you today. I am turning the mic around and having a wonderful, very learned, very experienced, very multifaceted guest today with the name of Sharan Srivatsa. You got it. I got it. Okay, I got it. Well, I know you anyway, because I know all about your history with TELUS, and I know you know lots and lots of stuff about you. Sharon is the CEO of Kingston Lane, and for those of us in the real estate business, many of us know what Kingston Lane is. We're going to get into that further in the podcast, but it is a delight to have you here, a former Goldman Sachs banker and Silicon Valley entrepreneur. Sharon is a sought-after keynote speaker and contributor to top media publications, in addition to being an investor and an advisor to various cutting-edge technology companies, I am a technology junkie, right? I guess I'll set you up, Sharon. I'm a technology junkie all the way back to when I was a little kid. I remember when my dad bought his first gallon of petrol in the UK, and you got a digital watch with it. And it only did two things. Sure. It told the time and showed you the date. But I still, I read the manual cover to cover, read it, read it, read it. And that kind of like intrigue with technology is something that has been a blessing and a curse, which I'm yeah. sure you can relate to. Now, I have really been a, a two-trick pony, a music guy, and now a real estate guy. Your past is a lot broader, mm-hmm. right? Yeah. And so we're going to get into some questions and maybe we should save well, why don't you introduce yourself and give the listeners like a little bit of a history about you? Yeah, totally. And um, first, Peter, thank you so much for having me. And a lot of times people don't realize how 
how, how complex and how much effort it takes to put all this together. And you do this, you know, you do, you do this more, I, I think, from because you, you love this and you get a, I enjoy this, I wanted to speak with you, but more importantly, there's a lot of effort that goes into producing something like this and sharing it with the world. And I want to thank you for making time to do that and, and just being so, just so open and sharing with, with all that you do. So thank you for, thank you for, thank you for that. Entrepreneurship is kind of in my blood. I feel uh, a lot of times people wear the word entrepreneur as a badge of honor, if you will. And I kind of think about it differently. I think about entrepreneurship uh, sometimes it's got two sides to a coin, but it's it's also a curse. Uh, And it's, and I think the people that deal with that the most is our, is our families. Uh, My poor, I have a wonderful wife and two little kids and the toughest portion of being who we are and what we do is having them, you know, understand our worlds. And I'd say, you know, over the years, my wife and I've been married 11 years and she's way smarter than I am. I actually met her in business school. So she was top of her class. And the interesting part is it's taken us over a decade for her to get the you know, that I don't work nine to five and like, I can't just turn it off when we're all away and that I may be driving for a four hour drive and have my thoughts going on and on. But my uh, obsession has been, I'm a builder. I just love, I'm obsessed with building things. It doesn't matter if it's technology-based, process-based, workflow-based, a portfolio-based. I've had, I'm very fortunate. I've had five exits in the last 19 years. So wow. it's, very, very grateful for that. But what people won't tell you is the, is the 13 failed experiments that happened during that same time, which I probably lost more than I made in the entire bargain, but people only look at the success story. So I'm very grateful for all the entrepreneurial opportunities that I got. And uh, it's been a blessing and a curse to just live and work through the five exits in the last 19 years. You know, it's funny hearing you because, you know, normally, uh, and I'm lo- I love interviewing. I-, I love it. I just really enjoy finding out people's stories. But it's interesting. I'm hearing phrases come from you that I use, which is it's a blessing, not a curse, and also building things. You know, I think being an entrepreneur, and I guess it took me a long time to figure out that I, I was one. But, you know, you kind of look back and you're like, well, I built this and I built that and I built that and I built, oh, and there is technically a name for that. Right. And, and to be honest, uh, I think guys like us, there's a theme, which is we tend to be pretty unemployable. Sure. We have to keep creating our own businesses. Right. right. Now, you come from, well, you have Kingston Lane, which is a massively successful technology company geared towards real estate right now, which we're, we're going to dig into a little later. But you also cut, you have a Wall Street history. You, were on, you worked for Goldman Sachs for a while. Can you tell us about that? Yeah, sure. So um, I'll actually take you back to a, a little bit of a bigger history there. So right out of college, I was a computer science and math major. And the only reason I did that was because they would let me build stuff. And that's, that was the best part of it. After my first company, we, we built a technology business in the infrastructure space in the Silicon Valley. And after we sold that, I'll give the listeners the truth. We got bought for a huge sum of money. And I was barely 21 years old at that time. And because of a technicality, not a technicality, because of a clause written in the contract, I, my stake was reduced by 50x on the day of closing. So think about it for a second. So you go from $50 to $1, right? And of no fault of anybody's except my own for having contractual ignorance, just contractual ignorance. And 
while we all still did fine, I was, you know, the, the, the exit was very big. So it was good for everybody. But that's what was the difference between leaving a jet and a yacht on the table, right? Yeah. And I swore that day, Peter, that contractual ignorance for a builder is not a good thing. And the way you structure deals was super important. So I fell in love with the deal structuring thing. And one of my mentors told me, hey, if you ever want to learn deal structuring, the place to learn it is at Goldman Sachs. And I go, how am I ever going to get there? And so I actually went to, um, there's, there's only one path and you have to go to business school. And there's very few, there's only like 16 business schools in the country that are feeders to get to Goldman. So I went to Vanderbilt, which is a great school. And I had 39 one-on-one interviews to get the job. Good. Individual one-on-one interviews to get the job. And it was six months of a training program where you just sit there for six months and they hand you a Blackberry, a no limit corporate card, a headset. And they say, listen, like you just learn. And uh, that was a really humbling experience. Like you learn to become a student very quickly. For sure. and, and I learned deal structuring from the inside out. And I, I believe that it's made me a better builder now because now I can see, Hey, if I built this piece and I built that piece, Peter and I can combine those two pieces and it'll be a good structural win for both of us. So it changed my, Hey, my, my rogue brute force entrepreneurial building capacity to how do I structure this well so that people can win. So a lot of times my, one of my mentors will tell me this. He says, entrepreneurs are people that solve problems for a profit right? And what I used to do was just build stuff to solve problems. But now I've realized how I can build stuff to solve problems for a profit. And that's what completely changed my world. And I think one of the turning points, because entrepreneurs, people that work for themselves, generally, there is is a, a kind of an innate need to control is an ugly word, but to, to kind of have your hands on every facet of the process. And what I learned kind of the hard way is one must find team members that complement your weaknesses, mm-hmm. right? If you all do the same thing on the team, there's going to be squabbling on the team, right? So I like to use the term hunter and skinner, right? I'm a hunter. I like to work with a skinner and, and that just for me gets the best results and, and having team members that you can rely upon just exponentially makes the, the ability to scale, which is why we're all in this, right? Uh, I feel a distinct possibility. Okay. I want to dive into a question because there was, when I was looking through all of the notes, there was a question, not a question. There was a, there is something that is so close to my heart. It is uncomfortable. And that is, I believe I may have met someone who also has imposter syndrome. Now, imposter syndrome for you guys out there is something that haunts entrepreneurs, which is their feeling of failure is imminent and we're all going to live under a bridge. So when I saw that you struggled with imposter syndrome, I had to kind of lead with that because that I think is one of the most crushing forces behind anybody who's trying to get an idea off the ground, if you want to share. Yeah. And Peter, thank you for asking. I think the hard part is there's a lot of strength and vulnerability, right? It took me a while to actually understand that. It took me a while to actually say, hey, you know what? I'm okay stepping up and being truthful and honest. And it may, yes, it may, it may hurt my mom and she won't talk to me at Thanksgiving because I shared a story about how I had to dumpster dive. But the vulnerability is a lot, we're not sharing it, is, is strength for a lot of people because they find solace in that. And 
I think a lot of times when your our capabilities seem to be higher and more well-rounded than most people, when we start building stuff at an early age, sometimes we feel like the early successes are not deserved. Mm-hmm. And that's really tough from time to time. And for me, it's always been about, do I step up and do I actually deserve the recognition that I have? Do I deserve the five exits in the 19 years? Do I deserve when I walk around and someone says, hey, you changed my life? Like, how do you actually answer that? I don't know. <laughs> I, and, and, you know, I just say, well, like, thank you. And can I give you all the rest of the money in my pocket to make that feeling go away? Right? Like, it's, it's, it's that much. And I don't mean that in a negative way at all. I think it's super important. And some people's, you know, some people's egos, and I, I mean ego in a, in, a, in a positive way, self-esteems are extremely mature to the point where they can take the compliment and say, yes, I truly deserve that. But for us, it is there. I have this yearning, this hunger, if you will, to saying, wow, I haven't even done anything and you listen to a podcast of mine and that changed your life. Like I deserve to do more for you for me to uh, accept that thanks. And, and Peter, I have not reconciled to that. It's been super hard for me. But I also think that, you know, I, I talked to my, my wife and my coach about it and she always tells me, hey, maybe that's what keeps us, that's what keeps us a little bit more humble. That's what keeps us a little bit more kind. And, and so sometimes we have to, I think, uh, wrestle with the flaws, if you will, to to stay grounded and stay humble. Because I think kindness is the way, and no one's. You know, people say nice guys finish last. I'm like, I'm totally okay. Nah, that's. I don't totally, think that's true. Yeah. I think they finish equal first with bad, <laughs> with bad guys. Yeah, yeah. Some and, of the time. Yeah, yeah, and I think, and you know, I think, you know, I I would much rather walk away from a conversation and someone says, "Man, like." I, I had no idea he was that nice a dude. Like I, that would be the greatest thing that someone can say when I walked away because I know that in every other capacity I can, I can help them, but I want a character and a personality shine through because and I'll, Peter, I'll tell you the one last thing why. When I was a young kid, I had a tough upbringing when I was a kid. I didn't grow fast. I didn't hit my growth spurt until I was in 11th grade. I was ADD, ADHD. I was dyslexic. I was colorblind. I was tone deaf. I was a small kid. And I got bullied a lot. I got beaten in school. And I didn't have the courage to share that until like the last couple of years because it's been more therapeutic for me to do that. But that's been tough when the upper hand can beat you down. I think there's, a, there's an opportunity for some vulnerability. And knowing that I have, just from the day I shared that, you know, there's a lot of people that suffer in silence and I don't think suffering in silence is good anymore. And so that has a lot to go back to saying, hey, uh, do I actually truly deserve this? Right. And I, and I think there is, there is a part of my life, uh, ah, screw it. I'm just, I guess I'm just going to share it. I don't always share it, but when it comes up, you know, I was in the dance music industry, the nightclub industry, and, and it was fantastic. And it was everything you can imagine and more. But then I reached a point where I, I had to change my life and I, I became sober. And I see a lot of similarities where surrender is seen as weakness. Mm-hmm. Whereas surrender, surrendering to the fact you might need help with an idea or a company, or you've got the concept of a product to a certain point, but you need help from other folks. Surrendering to that is actually one of the most powerful things mm-hmm. in life. And that's what I went through with sobriety. And thank God it's kind of, for over the past 18 years of sobriety, it's parlayed into every kind of facet of my life. So what was your first entrepreneurial success and how old were you? I know you were 21 when you exited. Yeah, I'll give you a, a fun story. My parents were not uh, very well off. 
they were middle class family. They realized that I was in, I was born in India. They, they realized that I wasn't uh, uh, structured for that kind of environment. So my parents actually, Peter, sold everything that they had, everything that they had, and gave me one check. They gave me one check for one full year of university, one full year, and. They said, hey, uh, here's your safety net. It's got one full year. If you can make it the other three, go for it. If you can't, come back and we'll take care of you. And, wow. And, and, and which, is, which is a great safety net, right? Like that was a true story. So I, I, when I left India, I was like, there's no way I'm ever going back because uh, it, it was just a structural misfit for me. And I got to, my, um, got to university on the first day. And from a technology geek, you'll, you'll love this story because I walk in on day one. And this was pre-Wi-Fi, right? Like this was, Wi-Fi didn't exist at this time. But there was can't internet. Imagine, can't imagine a life without Wi-Fi now. There, there was internet. So I'll, I'll walk you through this. So I walk in the dorm room. I walk in my dorm room and there is a bed, a closet, and a desk on the right-hand side. So it's a bed, a closet, and a desk, and, and the window. And on the left-hand side, it was a bed, a closet, and a desk. And so it was a room as a, you know, for two people. And I saw this gray box that was up on the wall. And that was the box in which you would splice your ethernet into where you'd plug the cable in and plug it into your computer. But there was 18 feet from the bed, the closet and the desk for the cord to reach. And they had just installed all these boxes in like 1600 dorm rooms. Wow. So I get there early for international student orientation and I don't have any money. So I'm thinking, how am I going to make my next three years of tuition? Well, my roommate walked in that day and I start to tell him this, this idea. And he's like, well, how are we going to do it? So he's like, hey, let's go to, let's drive to Minneapolis and let's buy ourselves some cable. So we drive to Minneapolis, we buy ourselves some cable. And then I said, wait, if we need 18 foot of cable, everybody needs 18 foot of cable. And so I had him swipe his family's credit card, which he <laughs> has the extra credit card on. And we bought, as we maxed out cable, we bought, uh, cable. And then we sold it for $3 a foot. I made $57,000 in three days. Oh, wow. Days. We sold cable to everybody. Everybody. Incredible. I didn't even have a US bank account to put money into. So for like the first month, Peter, I would take cash to the local community bank $1,500 at a time because they would otherwise question my source. And that's how I paid for my second year of school. And it was all based on understanding that a cable box was 18 feet away from the desk. Wow, that's some profit, man, in three days. Bravo. So you got your second year of tuition on day one of your first. Yeah, day four. Yeah. yeah. Wow, that's amazing. Um, so I, we all read a lot of books. We, I'm sure we read very similar books. One of the things that I do religiously is my morning routine. Now, I'm not going to go into my morning routine, but I wondered... Are the things that you do on a daily basis, because our minds are scattered, you know, yeah, sure. they're all over the place. So having the guardrails of having a routine, I find very helpful. I wonder, is other tips and techniques that you, you deploy that help you kind of stay focused? Yeah, totally. So I think your morning routine starts at night for me, at least. And I, it, I would be unfair to talk about the morning if I didn't talk about the evening. There's two things that I do in the evening. It's very, very simple. The first thing that I do is I try to get in bed as soon as possible <laughs> because when my eight-year-old goes to bed, I'm useless after that. I, I, there's <laughs> nothing productive that happens in those last two hours of the day. I actually probably end up sending out some emails that I should not have sent out. And so I, I try to shut it down. And 
right before I go to bed, Peter, I have realized that I want to make um, my choices automatic for the morning. So right before I go to bed, mm. I actually play the movie of my morning in my head with my eyes closed. And it sounds really hokey, but I close my eyes. I, I visualize my alarm going off, me turning over, not hitting snooze, turning off the alarm, getting out of bed, putting my, you know, uh, my swimsuit, my, my tracksuit on, my, my workout clothes on, walking down the door. I even to the point where I click the button, open the garage door, back up the car. I visualize everything. Wow. And you can do it in under 90 seconds because you're just visualizing it in your head because when morning comes and that alarm goes off, the daisy chain of what actually happened has already been run. So you don't have to make that mini choice of, and do I want to get up? You've already run that choice in your head, at least for me. And I do it every single day. And there are days where I'm really tired and I don't do it. And I wake up and I find myself questioning the choice on whether I should actually hit the snooze or stay on for a little longer because I haven't pre-made that choice. Which is, which is fascinating, right? Wow. So you, you just pre-make all your choices so that when you get into the zone, you've already pre-made the choices in the right state of mind. That is genius, dude. It's the easiest thing. And, and listen, I do it, Peter, because I do it because I just have terrible willpower. Like willpower doesn't work. Like I don't, in your bed with covers and sheets and my wife right by me, like it's way too comfortable to get out, right? And, but the second thing that I do is like, I like public accountability. And so about four years ago, I started this, uh, this call in the morning called the 5 a.m. club. And it is a call that I run at five minutes at 5 a.m., seven days a week, 365 days a year. And the funny part is when uh, I originally started this, I was just sick and tired of you know, not being able to wake up and I needed some public accountability. So I texted three of my friends and I said, hey, listen, here's a conference call number. Just get up two to four minutes. I'll share a message. It may be funny and you can just go back to bed. But if I know that you're going to be on, like I can't let you down. So I get up and, and Peter, I remember from a conference call perspective, you'll love this. I didn't start writing this down. Well, here's the best part. You, you, you see that, and I, I dial in the first day. This was three and a half years ago. And I hear the ding, ding, ding. Three people signed on, right? Well, the next day, and I give the message and they, it's fine. Three, four minutes long. The next day I get on and it goes ding, 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 ding. I'm like, how is there four people on this call? That's weird. Maybe they invited somebody. Well, the next day, the third day was ding, 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 ding. And I go, well, there's more people on this call. Okay, that's interesting. So it went from three people to 10, to 30, to 300, to 3,000. Today, oh. today we have 5,000 people on the call. Every morning, five minutes at 5 a.m. Pacific time, 365 days a year. It is, uh, we have two billionaires on the call as well. Um, it's uh, about close to 20% are entrepreneurs, uh, 20% are real estate folks, about 80% entrepreneurs people that I don't even know. We have an extremely vibrant Facebook group. So I get on every morning at 4.55, 4.56 a.m. And I share one message with for three to five minutes just to get people kick off their day. And it happens every single. So I've done over, what, over a thousand calls and inconsistency. And do they, do you all talk on the call no, or is just it? Just me. Dude, that's so great. That's the best alarm clock on the planet. Think about that. I got a 5,000 person accountability group. I, I won't use bad language, but you're screwed. You, you can't get out and make <laughs> it. But that's yeah. great. Yeah. It's kind of like it's a, it's a, it's a, it's a trick, but it, everybody wins. You win, they win. You know, everybody wins. Yeah. So 
I want to now kind of dive into, you were instrumental with, uh, with TELUS. So for those of you who are listening outside of Los Angeles, you may be aware of TELUS. TELUS was, a, uh, was an independent company that was founded in LA around 2006-ish? Yeah, 2007, 2008, yep. Okay, and they were kind of a fresh new interpretation of a very old and tired industry. So, uh, and it's a company that blew up pretty quick. So can you tell us a little bit about your history with TELUS and, what, and what, how instrumental you were there? Yeah, totally. I, you know, it was, uh, again, this was, again, one of those uh, uh, accidents, if you will. Uh, I had, so me and my, me and my business partner from my, our first technology venture, uh, we had made, we started to make various investments. And he, we had, I, had, I knew nothing about the real estate business. And so he, we had invested in a small company called TELUS. At that time, it had one office in Beverly Hills. We had 33 agents at that point in time. You know, you know Peter Hernandez, who's a really great, he's a yep. really great person. And he was the broker at that time. And um, since I was a banker at Goldman, you know, we, they said, hey, would you mind coming in and, and like just sharing some growth ideas with us? Well, the first thing I came in and I found was the original founders at that time were just not aligned. And that's all it was, but they had a great concept and they wanted to do things a little differently. And so it got to the point where I could see a fracture in leadership coming about. And the funny part is when you shared that on the table with the leadership team, they were really open to that. They were like, oh my gosh, yes, we love the concept, but this team's not working. And I said, well, you guys have raised some money, like this can't not work. Uh, and I'm, one of, I'm a passive investor. So I laid out some ideas and then I went back to New York working for mm-hmm. Goldman. And what happened was the, the team started to fall apart. The leadership team and the partners started to fall apart. So I actually took a small sabbatical, a hiatus. I came out just to see if we can stabilize the business and find a CEO. That's all the goal was. And it had one office in Beverly Hills, 33 agents at that time. And uh, we did like a four-month CEO search. Couldn't really find anybody at that time that would, you know, get along with any of, any of the team sure. members and drive the company forward. We were actually going to make it worse. So me and my partner at that time, we said, all right, we're going we're gonna, to we're gonna clean up the balance sheet and we're going buy to buy the majority control uh, along with the team to see if we can drive this company forward. And I couldn't tell you what a real estate transaction was. I had no idea whatsoever, but I knew the structure. I knew people. I knew how to build a business. And so we went from 33 agents uh, and one office to 610 agents in 22 offices in five years. So we go roughly from a revenue perspective, 10X in five years and um, very, you know, it was profitable, very, not the average brokerage where you would, uh, you know, like have to have mortgage and escrow to actually pay for stuff. But we had built a really great culture. The people who love being a TELUS love being a TELUS. And we were not for everybody, but we spent a lot of time just building a great business. And, uh, about 18 months ago, we were acquired by Douglas Elliman. And so that was a great win for everybody as well. And so grateful for the, the chance to build and grow something. It was, it was the largest people-based company I'd ever built before. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so that's, that, was a, that was a really fun one. Yeah, that's, I mean, I, obviously I, I see some similarities because I have an independent brokerage in LA right now yeah. uh, with about 150 agents. And it's, uh, you know, it's an interesting time in real estate right now. Uh, I think that the, the, the entire game has, has changed. Uh, I got into it in 2005, really kind of at the tail end of the super traditional way of doing real estate. I was a massive believer in this, yeah. in media and in, in technology and, and in being omnipresent to your potential client base. So I want to dive in a little bit now into Kingston Lane because that's the, pro- that, that's the, the company that you own at the moment. 
So Kingston Lane provides services and tools for, for the real estate industry, but I'm sure you can be far more eloquent about it than I can. Yeah. So, so the, one of the things that I realized, and I'll tell you a lot of people, the problem with starting a new business is you have to say, well, here's who we are and here's what we're going to do. Well, the interesting part, I'll give you the truth, Peter, is I was very fortunate to be able to say, hey, you know what? We're going to fund, we're going to fund two years of experiments. We're going to fund two years. And very few people can, nice. can say that. So, so, so I said, we're going to fund two years of experiments because the world is changing so fast that I want to see what, like, what sticks, like what works. And it's been, a, it's been an amazing ride because we've looked at it from the lens of everything that we have built. And I'll tell you what we've built. Everything that we've built has all been around how can somebody give us feedback on whether they're using this or not? In all pieces of technology we've seen is you have, you have power users who probably use one third of the system really well. But mm-hmm. on average, in every technology platform around the US, I have, I have 13, you know, not for my fund, we have a real estate investment fund. I'm invested in 13 real estate technology companies right now. And every single CEO tells me the same exact thing. The average is no more than 10% of usage of features in our system but we still build 90% more features. I'm like, that's crazy to me that you would do that. And so yeah, now you have some random product person who's saying, well, let's build this fringe feature when less than 10% of the features are being used. So everything that we've been, we have built has been around like, what, what do people want? What's working? So our first algorithm that we put in place was a little bit of AI that says, what are people using? Like, that's the focus. That's been the focus. And that's, we've been doing this for 18 months. And the data is insane as to what people are actually using mm-hmm. and what, are, what they're not using and what do they want and what do they not want. And, and Peter, that's been my entire kind of focus. It's been my obsession to kind of figure out, hey, I'm going to write a check to figure out what people want as opposed to claim that I know what people want and then try to go build it. So then the question is, what do they want? You've got well, the data. Super, yeah, it's super interesting. So here's what they want from the data, right? So number one, they want, um, they want done for you. The number one thing they want is done for you because I think what the average real estate, you know, so we have, we have close to 11,000 users in, a, in, in 10 countries. So I see a lot of this, this stuff, right? A lot of Australia, New Zealand stuff as well. And they want done for you, which is they say they want to, I call it push the button, watch the magic. They want to push one button and they want to watch the magic. They don't want you to push the button though, because they want you to, they want to control when that button gets pushed. But once that button gets pushed, they want to watch the magic happen all the way. And the interesting part is, when does that magic stop? So can I push a button and say, yes, I want a lead. Do you want me to nurture the lead all the way? But when do you want me to stop? Do you want me to stop with the appointment? Do you want me to stop with a response? Do you, like, when do you, that's what I don't know yet. So what we've been working on is, hey, you push a button. We do, we've built this program, what we call Lifetime Nurture. It nurtures people all the way. And then as soon as they're ready and they raise their hand, an appointment pops up. So we're doing what we call a, can I deliver you an appointment? Hmm. at any point. So you could take, there are three, in any business, Peter, there's three general ways where people push leads into something. They, sure. you, you actually currently have your current database, people that you know, et cetera. That's cool. You say, I'm going to do, I'm going to buy leads of sorts, right? Buy attention in some way. That's, that's that. Or third, I'm going to do activities. I'm going to do open houses. I'm going to do events. I'm going to do whatever else. And, but people get all this, but they don't have any machine to push it into. And so now you're thinking, okay, well, how do I make this work? And so let me give you life stats from this morning. It takes 23 average touches over a 41-day period to generate a response. Yikes. Boy, that's gone up. 
23 touches, 41 days to generate a response. There is no way you can do that. There's no way you can manually do that. It's impossible to manually do that. And so when people tell me I'm really good at follow-up, I'm like, no, you're not. 23 touches in 41 days to generate a response. Every 45 touches, we set an appointment. Wow. But, but you've got to be able to do this at scale. And so now when someone actually is spending $1,000 running a Facebook ad, they're like, oh, Facebook leads suck. I'm like, well, they, don't, they don't suck. You, 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 don't have no, you don't have a system to nurture them. That's the problem. So then you've got, you've got my ears pricked up. I didn't realize the numbers were quite that extraordinary. I thought it was like 12. I mean, I thought it was 12 hits before you, you, you got a response. It used to be four. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, it used to be two, but yeah. now there is just so much bombardment of, yeah. of noise. Uh, I find those numbers extraordinary. So, and how does it nurture? Does it nurture through SMS? Does it nurture through email? Does it nurture through everything? Yeah, three ways. Uh, very simple. It nurtures through email, SMS, and, and retargeting because you got, you got to be omnipresent. There's no other way. And if there is no retargeting, actually, that, that takes much longer because you've not built any kind of brand around it. Right. So for those of you who are kind of going, what are they talking about? You need to jump on YouTube and, <laughs> and dial up retargeting because retargeting is the future of your business, yeah. ladies and gentlemen, and creating custom audiences that you can retarget and lookalike audiences. And then having a data cruncher that once, you know, back in the day, we just wanted to, the phone to ring. Now we get bombarded with all sorts of leads of all types of quality and there needs to be, for one of a phrase, a mincer to yeah. put those leads through to see which actually turn into, yeah. into proper deals. I'll tell you this from a, from a data perspective, Peter, you'll love something like this. So we have, um, we have agent teams around the world that use our stuff and not in the luxury markets as much as uh, this doesn't work, but in, in the bread and butter markets in the US, what they do is they'll say, well, we're going to have call night. You've heard the call night idea though. We're just going to pick our database and call people. Like there cannot be a dumber idea than call night. <laughs> the, the call night is the dumbest thing you can do. And let me tell you why, right? Because people don't like talking on the phone. So they hate it when you call them. They, like my wife doesn't answer. Like I call her and she'll take me back saying, what do you want? Right? And, and it's, but interestingly, if you have a machine and the machine is what we built that nurtures this stuff, what we tell our clients is, hey, don't do call night. What you should do is since we have all this information, like press a button, it auto SMSs them saying, hey, I'm working through a few things for my private clients this evening. I'm just going to try you if you're available between 6 and 8 p.m., no pressure. Now, if you do that and then call them, it's a completely different call night. Now, you can also see if they respond. So, now you're actually warming up the call as opposed to just saying, oh, look at me. We're all going to call together, eat pizza, and drink beer. Like the stupidest thing ever. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Right? It's funny. That's the entire theory kind of in a nutshell as to why I leapt into social media so hardcore. Because social media for me is my warm-up. Yeah, if I'm creating content that people like, and they're like, oh, that guy, he's funny. I like his family videos. Oh, he, t he blabs about real estate a bunch. And then I call them. They're like, number one, they're reminded of who I am and what I do. And number two, I've warmed up the lead so I don't have to remind them, you know, exactly what I propose to do for them. And they've kind of already decided if they like me when they pick up. That's exactly right. And, and the best part is, and Peter, you've done this so well and everybody should, I hope, I hope everyone's following you and watching your stuff across all the platforms. And they don't realize how hard this stuff is, but you've, you've made this a way of life, which is yes. really powerful, right? And what, let's be super true. You have manufactured celebrity. 
you've manufactured so like and, and you are you deserve it all but like you created this because now like you said they've already validated that you're the right choice before yeah. you call them but the reason is like when people tell me oh sharon you did this you know you do you do a lot of stories and i'm like yes but you don't ask for a call to action like i don't need to they think i'm a rock star because i show up every single day and i win on cadence when yes. you can win on cadence, yes, it gets super exciting. Like and people are like, "Oh, what is it? I'm going to overthink my piece of content." I'm like, "My hair looks fine." Like they, I, I win every day because I show up every single yeah. day. Consistency, yeah, consistency. It's essentially a, an extended version of jab, jab. It's like jab, 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 right hook. Exactly. Exactly. You know, we don't ask. In fact, you know, I'm at the point where. Only the only time I mean I still prospect. I prospect every day to my to my sweetheart sphere, right? Yeah. But then there's that peripheral sphere that I don't know uh, as well that Kingston Lane would be a perfect product for. I mean that I can use in conjunction with my A, B, yeah. C, and D spheres. But I'm at the point now with my A and Bs. I kind of don't even need to ask them for business. Right. I just need to call up and say, "Hey, Sharon, how is how are you and the kids? How's how's the dog? Yeah. How is the operation? Is its leg working right?" right. Right. That's as much of a check-in as I need. And they're I like, totally. oh, love that guy. But I also think that with the, so people don't realize that um, we are in so many funnels right now, right? Like I get, I get 11 emails from Grant Cardone, 11 right, know, per day. And, and people say, and people say, well, you email too much. Like I have an email list. I email every day and people say, no one reads your stuff. I'm like, of course they do. Have you seen my open rates? They're insanely high. I send out a, I send out a million emails a month. Like it's insane from an open rate perspective what I get, but Peter, I think that the cadence actually gives us the permission to ask. I think so. Totally, right? I, I think so, yeah. You can't just show up once in a while and say, cool, now you ask. But if you're showing up every day, you have permission to do whatever you want. Yeah, as long, and I think the rule is for everybody out there, they're like, oh, great. Well, I'm going to post videos of me walking through open houses all day. <laughs> no, my rule is if I want to, at least with the vast majority of posts, it has to be entertaining informational or both. I want to try and give something away. I can't just be like, hey, look at this swimmer's pool. Isn't it awesome? Aren't I awesome? Do you want to buy or sell? Because that shit just does not work. Yeah, yeah. Um, Okay, so we are running out of time. So, and I barely got through any of my questions. This is how interesting Sharon is. So I want to kind of do a bit of a rapid fire because this is how I really kind of, this is how I really profile my guests. (laughs) Um, So uh, rapid fire question number one. Favorite movie and why? Uh, favorite movie, Pulp Fiction, because oh, I because yeah. I know the entire movie script. I was secretly hoping you were going to say Close Encounters, but, <laughs> but, but Pulp Fiction is amazing. Um, and then, if you could only take this is kind of like I don't know if you know the British radio show. There's a show that's been going for about four thousand years on the BBC called Desert Island Discs, where you take your favorite records to a desert island. This is kind of like Desert Island. Lorimer, what if you could only recommend one book to people? What book would that be? The book is Atlas Shrugged by Anne Rand. Oh. Probably a book that completely changed my life. It 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 made me think of the one quote that I use all the time, which is I was looking at it from a very tough part of my life, and transformations don't happen in isolation. And it's a it's an amazing it's an amazing book of an artist who completely changes his life. And so if if no one's ever read it, Atlas Shrugged. You know what? I, I'm not familiar with that book myself. So I'm learning as much as the audience here. So um, I got two more questions. One's a little deep. One is not. So I'm going to start with the non-deep one, which is where is somewhere on the planet that you haven't been that you would like to go? 
I would love to go to St. Petersburg, Russia. I have this fascination with, uh, with just, just cultures that have been around for so long that have influenced so many millions and millions of people that we as Westerners just don't get access to on a day-to-day basis. And so St. Petersburg is definitely on the list. Now, uh, I, I, I have to ask, what time would it be? Would it be St. Petersburg, Leningrad, Stalingrad, or St. Petersburg again? It would be St. Petersburg only because I just, um, I, all the stories I've read, I just don't, I, I don't know much about it. So I think uh, that'll be a, a very cultural experience for me. Yeah, yeah. I've, you know, I've never been to Russia and Russia is somewhere that I've always wanted to go. One day, there are so many places on the planet. Um, okay, so the last question is this. We're, you and I are big motivators and I don't find it hard to get motivated. But at the end of the day, my motivation is, is never money. My motivation is my family and my kids and being able to take really great vacations because those are the memories that are <laughs> the most precious to me. What is your biggest motivator in life? Um, I've been thinking a lot about this and it may sound a tough, but a lot of times, Peter, when we look at it, talking about the kids, when I look at my life and I'm like, well, how can I have more impact, right? How can I have more impact? And I keep going to one thing and my motivator is, how can I be a better dad so that I can get my children, can create a platform of possibilities for my children to have way more impact? I think I've had a chance to build, grow, and you know, have some, uh, you know, have some mod- modest success. But I know that if I can give, if I can be a good dad and give my children like this platform where they can choose to have an impact in whatever way they want, there's two of them now. And they, uh, I've instantly multiplied the ability for the world to get a little bit more impact. I don't think the world needs saving. Like people say, I want to save the world. I want to rid it of cholera, all of that. Like, <laughs> I, here's what I believe. Peter. I just think the world needs more entrepreneurs. That's all I believe. If the, if the world just needs more entrepreneurs because now you can solve problems for a profit. And I wake up every morning. My why is not my kids. My why is building a platform so that my kids can do, do what I may not have enough time to do. And uh, I'm super stoked for that. You know, I, I, think this, I think this is another thread that is woven amongst entrepreneurs, which is I am a chronic optimist, relentlessly optimistic. And I just don't know, really know where that comes from. And I, I, I think the world will actually be a better place in, in 20 years from sure. now than it is now. So, um, all right. So, Sharon, where can people find you? Tell us about wh- wh- where they can find Kingston Lane, where they, can they find you personally? Yeah. So uh, first, thank you for, um, you know, thanks for sharing this. It's the easiest place to find me is um, Instagram, which is uh, my full name, but I want to give, you know, I want to give everybody a gift here. There is a, I I wrote up these 37 lessons I I learned, Peter, growing Telus and it's, it's 10xin5years.com, just the way it's spelled, 10xin5years.com. It's got these 37 lessons learned. It's free. There's no opt-in. There's no squeeze, nothing. It's just 10xin5years.com. That has, as someone is listening to this and say, well, what does it take to grow something 10X in five years? I'll tell you, it takes a lot of pain and a lot of struggle and a, a lot of reflection and a lot of grace and 37 lessons learned growing something 10X in five years. So my gift is just, hey, go to 10X in five years.com, check it out. And hopefully one of those can impact your life. Oh, wow. That's very sweet. Well, listen, you have been a fantastic guest, Sharon. I could sit and talk to you for hours and hours and hours. And maybe, are you in LA? I live in Laguna Beach. Okay, so maybe we'll... We Next should. time you're in, in the hood, let's, let's grab a bite. It'd be really nice to kind of hang.
You got it. Hey, again, I want to tell people that we always take for granted how hard, uh, how easy this stuff is. If a show just pops up, <laughs> like the audio just pops up, the guests just get pop up. I mean, your team and I have been trying to get this together for a little bit now. And uh, thank you for, thank you for the opportunity to be on. You do great work and you're just an amazing ambassador for our industry and the media world itself. So can't thank you enough for having me on. That's very sweet. Well, thank you very, very much. Ladies and gentlemen, that's about it for another podcast for this week from the Real Estate Entrepreneur. This is Pete Lorimer and Sharon. We're going to be out for now. Please don't forget to subscribe. Don't forget to leave your comments. We love those. And most importantly, feel free to share this with someone else that you think might get value. And Sharon, big round of applause. That's about it for another podcast. Thank you so much to my special guest, Sharon. You were a badass. And I love your comments. I love it when you subscribe. And I really, really love it when you share this content with someone else that might get value. So until this time again, next week, this is Pete Lorimer signing out from another great episode of the Real Estate Entrepreneur Podcast. Thanks for listening. 